Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello and welcome to The Power Test, a political podcast that asks whether it's really all over for the Tories and what Labour should do to win power and change Britain for the better. I'm Aisha Hazarika. And I'm Sam Friedman. And each week we're joined by expert guests to try and find solutions to the nation's ills. Today we talk to Stella Creasy, MP for Walthamstow, and Anna Menon, who's the director of UK in a Changing Europe, to see how we clear up the mess that Brexit has created and assess what Labour's position should be on this very tricky issue. A big thank you for all the, the lovely feedback we've had about the first episode, and we'll answer some of those questions towards the end of the episode. Now, it's been quite a week, Sam, hasn't it? Yes, uh, we've had a big event with lots of really eccentric acts and lots of controversy. The National Conservative Conference or Eurovision, which one am I talking about? Um, so we can we can pick which one you'd prefer to talk about. I think Jacob Rees-Mogg doing cha-cha-cha was like amazing. <laughs> merge, the two events have merged in my head, which is pure insanity from both sides. <laughs> what did you make of the, um, the National Conservative Conference and sort of the gathering of the, the sort of socially conservative wing of the Tory party in that way for the first time? Both completely horrifying but absolutely mesmerizing at the same time like I sort of couldn't look away from it and it really felt like the the kind of the most bonkers ends of American politics were now coming to and the I, Conservative Party. I think a lot party. of people I was watching people react to Twitter and a lot of people didn't know whether to just find it utterly hilarious because it was so many of the talks were so mad you know people starting quoting Russell Crowe and sort of you know shouting at each other um, also to be scared because you know we've seen what's happened in America and these sort of crazy people have managed to get a lot of power it seems so infeasible but is there a risk that happens here? Now, Sam, I very much enjoyed your live tweeting of Eurovision. <laughs> <laughs> Are you a fan? Um, so, uh, no. 
The only bit of Eurovision I really like is the voting bit at the end. I love the fact there's a complex voting system. (laughs) My favourite bit of Eurovision is the fact that if you've been doing the maths, you know who's won when they do the suspense bit at the end. So they're doing that kind of long pause. Is it Sweden? Is it Finland who's won? And I'm like, I know it's Sweden because I've been doing the maths. I've done the maths. Um, But but I wanted to ask you what you were doing at the weekend because you were interviewing Keir Starmer and, uh, and you asked him actually about some of the stuff we were talking about last week. I was. uh, I was at the Progressive Britain Conference, which was really interesting, a sort of gathering of sort of progressive centre-left folk, many of whom are, of course, members of the Labour Party. The mood was... I don't think I've ever been to a conference like this within the Labour Party. You know, it was so positive. You know, everyone was very, very punchy and excited following the local election results. And also I have to say lots of really nice uh, mentions about our podcast. Like loads of people were kind of rushing up to us saying that they really, really enjoyed it. So thanks very much. We much appreciate it. And I got the chance to to interview Keir. Now, Keir's speech was very much about hope, but also pivoting the party probably more in a Blairite tilt, saying, you know, I'm making no apologies. We've got to be a new Labour project of these times. And he had this sort of odd phrase, which is, we're going to be clause four on steroids, which he said in quite a tranquilized voice. Yes. Also, I wonder how many people have a clue what Clause 4 is anymore. I mean, it's a huge debate within the Labour Party, or was a huge debate within the Labour Party, but can't imagine many voters are like, oh yeah, Clause 4, I remember that. But I did ask him as well in the CUNY, because we had Alistair on our first, Alistair Campbell on our first episode, and he was very much moving in the direction of supporting proportional representation. And Keir Starmer was talking a lot about hope and young people. And I put it to him and said, look, a lot of people are quite hopeful that Labour will do something bold and radical, particularly around how we vote and proportional representation. And what was interesting is he really slapped it down. He said, absolutely not. It's not one of my five missions. And I thought, "Mm, interesting. And I spoke to some people afterwards and they were like, I don't think he should have boxed himself in like that. You know, the mood was very much where we are all quite open Mm. to discussing uh, proportional representation. Then what was interesting is in the next day's papers, on Sunday's papers, there was a story, which I think, to be honest, has slightly been sort of leaked from National Policy Forum discussions, saying, actually, we are thinking about giving votes to 16-year-olds and expanding the franchise. So I thought that was a bit odd, having gone from we are not talking about constitutional issues, Mm. we're not talking about electoral issues to then the story kind of yeah, I think coming out. Has, you can tell me if I'm wrong. I think he has a bit of a tell that when he actually kind of agrees with something but knows that the line he's supposed to be taking is not his actual view, he tends to be more aggressively opposed to it. And I think that's, I suspect, you know, in the past, several years ago, he was more much more positive about PR. I suspect in his heart he still is, but he knows that it's not an electorally helpful thing for, for the Labour Party. But, 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 but to wrap it up, what was interesting is he... You know, he's incredibly confident, you know, at the mm. moment. The mood of, of of the party is very confident. There are lots of shadow cabinet people there and they're feeling pretty punchy. But interestingly, no mention of the word that we are discussing today, mm. the B word. Brexit. And we have actually got some polling, some exclusive polling from our friends at, at More in Common, which I think shows the extent to which Labour have not been talking about the issue. Uh, we asked people uh, what Labour's position on the EU currently is, and we gave them a list of, of four options. And at 50% of people said they did, they don't know. Now, 
that's very high for a polling question. Most people at least have a stab at these questions, even if they, you know, get it wrong, they, they have a go. But um, 50% said didn't even try, they just don't know. And of the of the 50% who did give it a go, uh, most of them are wrong. Only 19% got Labour's position right, which is that they want a closer relationship with the EU, but not to rejoin single market customs union or the EU itself. So I think that just kind of shows in one way, Labour have done a good job of neutralising it because no one knows what their position is, but also there's a real lack of clarity there. So is this a problem for Labour and what should Labour do? Does it need to do anything at all given the local election results? We'll be putting these questions to Stella Creasy shortly, but before that, before we get into the politics of Brexit with the Labour Party, let's assess the impact it's actually had by speaking with Professor Anand Menon, who is Director of UK in A Changing Europe. Tell us a bit about your organisation. What is the UK in a changing Europe? Well, UK in a changing Europe is a weird organisation. We're a network of academics and we're funded to make the findings of research accessible to non-academics. So we're people who aspire to make public and political debates more based in evidence is our fundamental role. Which is pretty hard to do when it comes to something like Brexit, which is a fairly polarising issue or has been a fairly polarising issue. I mean, what what is the best summary you can give us of what the evidence says on on the impact of Brexit to date? Um, I suspect most of our listeners will think it's had a pretty negative impact, but what, what does the evidence actually say? I mean, the evidence is mixed. I mean, one of my frustrations is the inability of economists to answer straight questions with straight answers, and Brexit sort of exemplifies that to me. There has been an impact. The data reveals that trade flows have been affected, that the number of trading relationships between the UK and the EU has shrunk, which implies some smaller firms have dropped out of that export market. There's a ton of anecdotal evidence from firms that they've experienced problems in trading, that they've had to stop trading with the European Union. The figures give a mixed picture. So there are some oddities. For instance, our services exports have held up better than I think most people would have predicted. What we don't know is the degree to which that's because of COVID and the fact that now a lot of services are provided via Zoom, that actually some of the problems that Brexit would have created are no longer being created because we work differently. But in both export and import terms overall, we do see something that looks very much like a Brexit impact. One of the problems we have is there's so much economic noise at the moment with the cost of living crisis, with what's going on in Ukraine, with the tail end of COVID, that I think it's very, very difficult to try and pin precise numbers on that. What about the other way around when you know Rishi Sunak uh, lists off all of the benefits of Brexit? Are there any on his list that you think, yeah, that's fair enough. That is actually a real benefit. That is something that wouldn't have happened if we hadn't left. Well, our immigration policy is something that wouldn't have happened if we hadn't left. And that, of course, has significant economic implications, as every single OBR report makes clear. In economic terms, as for the rest, I mean, one of the curious things, and we're, what, nearly seven years on from the referendum is... We don't really know what our post-Brexit economic model is. And until we do, it's going to be hard to judge the measures taken that wouldn't have been possible as a member state and what their impact have been. I think unless something spectacular happens, it is very, very hard to believe that those impacts will be anywhere near the scale of the hit to our economy of being outside the single market. I mean, immigration is a really interesting one because... For me, the biggest benefit to Brexit has been the fact that we have have massively increased high-skilled immigration into the UK mm-hmm. from outside of the EU. Mm-hmm. And yet you've got the people who are most associated with Brexit these days, people like Jacob Rees-Mogg, people like Suella Braverman, criticising our high immigration numbers, which is 
sort of the one thing that you could argue they actually sort of did that they said they were going to do. I mean, to an extent, certainly vote leave, even when, for those with long memories, when vote leave pivoted to focus on immigration towards the end of May 2016, they never said we're going to limit numbers. They said we're going to have points-based system where if you have skills, you can come here. One of the problems for the Tory party is in their manifesto, there is that line, overall numbers will come down. And I think that's causing some concern. And also, the fact that the Conservatives can't agree on immigration was absolutely baked into that referendum campaign because there were two Leave campaigns, one of which struck a very, very different tone on immigration to the other one. And that's just coming home to roost slightly. But but I think the general takeaway from the public about the bigger meta campaign to Leave was we're going to get immigration done. That was like a big... It was certainly the biggest reason yeah, why people voted for it. There were two things that people remembered, really. There was more money for the NHS mm-hmm. and we were going to get down immigration. And of course, you know, we all know that neither of those things have happened. I mean, I would just say, I mean, if I were a Leave campaigner, I'd say we said we were going to control immigration. And actually, one of the really curious things about immigration that's happened is that post-referendum, and despite those numbers and the figures that the ONS released recently showed a record number of uh, in terms of net migra- uh, immigration is that public opinion has liberalised quite spectacularly when it comes to immigration despite that. So something has changed. There's two schools of thoughts on that, isn't there? One of which is that actually what they wanted is control, and we do have much more control than we did uh, with free movement. So the fact that there are very large numbers doesn't bother people, especially when they can see they're doing important jobs in in the NHS. Uh, And the other is they just sort of haven't realised, and the press are only just starting now to really go heavily on on legal migration as opposed to what they call incorrectly illegal migration. And as they start, as it starts to become a bigger issue again, it, it will start to become a bigger public issue again. I'd add one thing to your list, Sam, which is a third, which I think is important. I think the geography of immigration has changed. That's to say, pre-referendum, you've got a lot of people from the European Union coming to poor parts of the United Kingdom to do, as we now know, jobs that the Brits won't do. And so they were going to places like the east of England where services were already stretched, where things were already pretty bad economically, and that caused resentment. Now, if it's students you're talking about, they're going to places that have universities. If they're high-skilled people, they tend to be going to the city. So these immigrants are going to places that are already more prosperous and where actually people are more liberal in their attitudes. So it might be partly to do with that, that actually the destination for these immigrants is different, so it has less of an immediate impact on public perceptions. Tell us a bit more about where what we know about where public attitudes are, are on Brexit at the moment and the sort of level of regret amongst uh, Leave voters in particular. I mean, Nigel Farage was on TV this week saying Brexit had been a failure. Is that sort of what other Leave voters are, are thinking at the moment? I mean, certainly there are more and more Leave voters who are expressing the feeling that Brexit has damaged the economy. That doesn't necessarily translate into an acceptance they made the wrong decision because for an awful lot of them it's damaged the economy because it's been done badly. So it's very much linked to perceptions of a lack of competence on the part of government. There are certainly Leave voters out there who are saying this isn't working, but not necessarily because they think they voted the wrong way in 2016, but because they think they've been let down subsequently. What was interesting at the local election results is that areas which had been very, very Leave seemed to be coming back to Labour. So certainly Labour strategists feel, they feel like the issue is is becoming neutralised. What do you think? I mean, it's very, very hard to know, isn't it? I mean, there are are many plausible explanations. One plausible explanation is that those areas that tended to vote leave 
have lower median incomes, so people are more exposed to the cost of living crisis, that inflation hits them harder. And actually, that might change when we emerge out of the end of the cost of living crisis. One of the things we just don't know is the degree to which opinion about Brexit now is tied to the fact that quite soon after we left the European Union, we're having an economic crisis. Right. people sort of implicitly put two and two together. So it, it is, as with all these things, I think, quite messy and quite hard to be precise about it. But you're absolutely right. Labour is doing well in places with a higher percentage of Leave voters. I suspect that's largely because people weren't really thinking about Brexit when they voted rather than anything else. I don't think it's necessarily a triumph for Labour's Brexit policy. I mean, we, we looked at some polling earlier in the show that showed people don't really know Labour's Brexit policy is at the moment. Mm -hmm. So it's unlikely that they're voting for Labour's Brexit policy because they don't they don't have much of a sense of what Labour stand for at the moment, which would sort of suggest they're thinking about other things at the moment. Mm -hmm. Do you think if Labour had a policy position that was more sort of aggressively pro-Europe and and more loudly pro-Europe, that would be helpful to them either in winning the election or or after the election? No, I don't. Uh, I think the sweet swap for Labour at the moment is that we talk about the economy, we talk about public services, we talk about the NHS. I think if you ask any political strategist what terrain Labour wants to fight in an election, they're the things. They don't want to be talking about Brexit. So if Brexit's neutralised, that's a win. Whereas what they've tried to do, I think, an inch towards is making Brexit an economic issue linked to government incompetence rather than the cultural issue it initially was. And that seems to be perfectly sensible. I don't think... What they're saying specifically about what they do stands up to scrutiny particularly, but I suppose in the context of an election campaign, that doesn't really matter. And why do you think it doesn't stand up to scrutiny? Because their big line is, let's make Brexit work. Is that possible? Well, yes, it's definitely possible. I mean, you know, as with all things Brexit, it depends where you stand on the trade-offs. If, if for you, controlling migration was more important than the aggregate side of the size of the UK economy, then Brexit might be working already. What doesn't work about the Labour position for me is there's a slight hint of dishonesty about the economic gains to be had from the very incremental changes that they're suggesting. I mean, yes, an SPS agreement on stand on sanitary and phytosanitary. Explain what an SPS yeah. agreement is. This is the things that govern the movement of things like plants and crops. It's agricultural standards, if you like, or a veterinary agreement. Things like that will make the life of farmers and food importers and exporters much easier. They'll also help with the Northern Ireland border. They're not going to have a huge macroeconomic effect on the UK economy. That macroeconomic effect comes from being outside the single market. And ultimately, if you're thinking about the economics, that's where the action is. So I think what Labour is proposing might help the mood music slightly, it might help some sectors slightly, but it's not going to have a profound impact on the national economy. So I'm really interested in this sort of shift because I agree with you right now from a purely political point of view, what they're saying, neutralising the issue, as you put Mm. it, makes sense. It's not what they want to be talking about in the run-up to the election. But they've gone quite a long way in saying, you know, that there are these big economic gains to be had without rejoining the single market, without going back into the EU. And that feels quite dangerous when you get past the election. Let's say they They've won, let's say they've got a majority, you're in quite a different environment with your own side full of people who mostly voted remain, mm-hmm. with quite a large proportion of voters saying that they are unhappy with how Brexit's gone. It might be quite a difficult line to maintain after the election. No, absolutely. Let me just interject one thing pre-election before answering your question, which is this all works very well 
as long as the Lib Dems aren't talking about Brexit. I mean, if the Lib Dems come out with a very, very strong rejoin message, that puts Labour in a very uncomfortable situation. But for whatever reason, and it's partly because they made gains in places like the South West, where actually there's quite strong support for Leave, uh, the Lib Dems aren't talking about it. So, and what if they uh, do? If they do, you probably need to get John Curtis in the studio instead of me because it becomes very, very messy all of a sudden. Uh, you know, the, the Labour and the Lib Dems are then in competition. And the one thing, you know, you've talked about it, Sam, uh, that we saw at the local elections was how apparently well tactical voting worked. You know, if you look at that that graph of, you know, seats where Labour were coming second to the Conservatives, the Labour vote suits up. Seats where the Lib Dems were in second place, the Conservatives, the Lib Dem vote shoots up. If there is a real angry tension between the Lib Dems and Labour on Brexit, which, as you know, for many people is the defining issue, that makes that uh, work a lot less well, I think. But when it comes to post-election with the Labour government, if we have a Labour government, I'd say there are two problems awaiting them. The first is a lot of the things they seem to be asking for remind me very much of the things that Michel Barnier called cherry-picking when Theresa May asked for them, which is like, well, yeah, sure you want that, but why should we give you it? So I think they'll find the EU a harder negotiating partner than they think. I mean, from some people in Labour, I get the impression that they think, well, we're nice, so they're obviously going to do a deal with us. But actually, the (laughs) EU is a nightmare to negotiate whoever the hell you are. You ask any country that has negotiated with the EU and forgive my French, they're bastards. They don't give ground. Okay, Mm. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is, even if you get some of these incremental things that Labour are after, the overall economic impact is going to be relatively trivial. So uh, let's look a bit longer term. And obviously, we're we're getting a bit crystal ball here. And and we can't say anything for certain. But but let's say that this drift in the polling towards seeing Brexit as a mistake continues Mm -hmm. for the next three, four, five years. You get to the point where 70% of the population are saying they would rejoin in a referendum. 75, 80% are saying Brexit hasn't worked. At some point, it becomes unsustainable Mm -hmm. to keep saying our policy is to make Brexit work. Do you think there is a chance or what do you think the chance is that, that we will eventually move back towards more formal arrangements, whether it's single market, whether it's rejoining in the long term? It's certainly possible that if Labour come in at the next election with a significant majority, they will start laying the groundwork for doing something after the next election. I also think it makes perfect sense for Keir Starmer, if he becomes Prime Minister at the next election, to say, look, there are all sorts of long-term things we need to be thinking about. At the moment, the country is in crisis and we have other priorities. I think that would be. I think people would buy that. So it might be, if, if it looks like they're going to be a two-term government, that the pressure will increase on him and that they will start thinking and perhaps talking to the European Union. But it's one of the, it's a very difficult issue, isn't it? Because it'll be a hard negotiation. It'll be a long negotiation. It'll take up a lot of governmental bandwidth. At what point in our future might we be ready to do that? It's far from clear. The other thing that we don't know, of course, is how our economy performs relative to those in the Eurozone. I think that's absolutely yeah. critical. Uh, if it starts outperforming, the mood might change. Yeah, yeah. If the Eurozone has a crisis or something goes wrong in the European Union... Then, then the whole calculation is different. And also, how do you think the Europeans w- would would feel about us suddenly going, do you know what, after giving you all this grief and slagging you off for the best part of a, a decade, we're ready to come back in? I think, you know, the EU, if it came to the point of thinking about negotiations, would look very carefully at what the alternative to the government in power was. So if you had an opposition Conservative Party that looked like it might become a government that was actually saying absolutely no way to that, they'd be saying, well, look, there's no long-term stability here, actually. So that would be an issue for them. There's no doubt about that. I don't see the EU saying, no, we won't negotiate. 
But as, as you know, as the Turks can testify, those negotiations could take an awfully long time if they put their minds to it. Final question. Do you think Labour are passing the power test at the moment on Brexit? Yes, I do. Pre-election, I think they keep doing what they're doing, which is say we're not the Tories and we need a change. You don't, I don't think Brexit needs to figure in that conversation. Not talking about Brexit passes the power test for me at the moment. Thank you very much. Anand Menon. Well, we're now delighted to be joined by Stella Creasy. Stella, of course, is the Labour MP for Walthamstow. She's also chair of the Labour Movement for Europe. Stella, welcome. Hiya. So you have been quite vocal about the fact that you think Labour's not talking enough uh, about Brexit. What, what do you want to see Labour do on Brexit? So let's be clear, nobody really wants to talk about Brexit. We're still in a period of kind of collective, ugh, every time anybody mentions it. But we do want to talk about how to solve the problems it's creating, because frankly, you can't make Brexit work. When people see their kids sitting in coaches at the border for 15 hours a time, they see the higher price of things coming in. They see jobs going to other people in the businesses that they work for or businesses just kind of giving up on trading with Europe because it's just so much paperwork. I mean, I had a local business came to me and they said, have you seen this amount of paperwork we've got to get to bring a stock cube in? This is bonkers. They don't want to talk about Brexit. They don't want to go back to referendums. They don't want to go back to that division. But they do want to see politicians sorting these problems out because they can see it's causing headaches across the country. So as a Labour movement for Europe, we think our role is to create that space to have that conversation and to move on from both all those people who were wearing blue berries with gold stars on singing Ode to Joy, but also the people who say, oh, benefits from Brexit and can't tell you what they are or when they're going to turn up. So... What What is it you'd like to see the Labour Party? What are you asking for as part of your movement? So we're doing a lot of work right now through the National Policy Forum, which is to develop Labour's manifesto, to say, actually, what really matters here is to get as much access as we can to the single market and to tackle those things like paperwork by getting some kind of customs union, whether you do it through the Pan-European Mediterranean Convention, which is not just European countries, but is all about all those things like rules of origin, whether you do some kind of bespoke deal, Get the visa waivers that we need so that people can work. I mean, if you talk to anybody in the creative industries right now, they can see the jobs that are going from the touring sector. They can see uh, the performers who can no longer go around Europe. They can see it's daft that you've got 500 million consumers on your doorstep and we've made it harder for British business to be able to work with them. So we think what's really important is to be clear, particularly with the Europeans, that we want to do a deal. We're not the Tories. We're not looking to have conflict with Europe. We're looking to do business. And what does that look like? It looks like being able to trade as easy as possible. I mean, isn't the easiest way to do that just to rejoin the single market and the customs union? Shouldn't that just be Labour's policy? So people talk a lot about rejoin and I understand where that's coming from because that's what people knew. But let's talk about that. A, you're talking about 10 years of negotiations, possibly seven if you can fast track it, at a time when, frankly, because of the cost of living crisis, I don't think we've got that time. But also, secondly, people rightly would respect that you'd need to have some kind of democratic consensus for that. And we know that's not there right now. And I look at Scotland, which has been riven by this argument about whether you have repeated referendums or not, and that's really led to a political stasis. I think we owe it to the British businesses who will, frankly, go out of business within the next three or four years to focus on what we can do 
now. And I look at the sectors where people are being retrained in Belgium or in France to do the jobs that were previously jobs that were specialists in the UK. And I think time is of the essence. So we've got to be incredibly pragmatic about this. So I understand the arguments we want to have about rejoin. But frankly, I don't think we've got time for that any more than we've got time to wait for Jacob Rees-Mogg's to identify what actually the benefits of Brexit are. So we just spoke to um, Alan Menon and he he was saying, look, you've just got to be realistic about this. He sometimes thinks that Labour people have this view that the EU will just give us lots of things because, you know, Labour are nicer people than the Tories. That's their sort of thinking. And he's like, no, why would the EU give you all of these. Why sort would of they things? allow you to cherry yeah, pick? Exactly. Yeah, we've got we've got membership. You chose to not have it. Why why would you get to cherry pick the goodies that you want? No, he's absolutely right. And one of the things, one of the reasons why we as a Labour Movement for Europe want to have this conversation is we think the the best thing you can do is to be really clear with Europe about, about what you're trying to achieve and what your boundaries are. Um, and one of the things that we've seen over the last 10 years, frankly, particularly under this government, has just been this aggression and hostility towards Europe, which has meant you can't even have those basic conversations about where can you work together. I mean, think about had we actually been working with Europe on the refugee crisis, how different things would be now, the conversations we could actually be having about the borders, the conversations we could be having about how you process those people who at the moment are getting in the boats. Same on climate change, same on trade, same on the cost of living. And actually, it's in both the interests of the UK and the European Union to fix some of those challenges. That doesn't have to happen through long treaty negotiations. It does have to happen, yes, with trust, but also with clarity about what you're trying to achieve. Anand is absolutely right about the idea of cherry picking. Nobody wants to cherry pick. What we want to do is do business, because at the moment, it's business and our economy and British workers who are suffering as a result. I mean, my, my nervousness about Labour's position at the moment is, you know, understand, I can totally understand why they don't want to talk about rejoining and for all sorts of good political reasons. But that when you get past the election, there will be a sense of we can make Brexit work, you know, be, have a, this better relationship with the EU. But it, in reality, that's not going to have anything like the economic benefits that membership had. Over time, it's going to get pretty hard to keep sustaining that position that Labour is making Brexit work because we're only going to see marginal benefits from any of these sort of smaller improvements that don't involve rejoining. So we're really clear in the Labour movement for Europe, you can't make Brexit work. I mean, absolutely, we could have the fastest growth in the G7 outside of the single market, but it's a hell of a lot easier if we can get access to the single market to achieve that ambition. We are going to have to negotiate. We've got the trade and cooperation agreement negotiations coming up in 2026. We want to be part of helping make the case that we can have that conversation. We can absolutely sort out the paperwork, but it's really important to recognise for the British public the benefits and the trade-offs that they're facing if we don't have that conversation. So do you think Keir Starmer should be a bit braver on this? Look, we've got this kind of mad situation now where even the sort of godfather of Brexit, Nigel Farage, this <laughs> week came out and said, guess what? It's all been an absolute disaster. It's hard. It's like kind of rarer than hen's teeth finding people right now who think Brexit has gone particularly well. Do you think there is a case for Keir Starmer just being a bit more bold on this and, and saying, you know, fair enough, we're not going to lead you back into the EU, but we are going to start talking about this more? 
I think what people want from their politicians is clarity. So absolutely, the Labour Party is saying it wants a closer relationship with Europe. I think there is merit in setting out what that looks like and where that comes from. But isn't that also quite difficult for the Labour Party to do right now? Because Brexit has only just begun to have been neutralised as a political issue. You know, we saw in the local elections, Labour did pretty well in areas which had, had voted leave. There might be a lot of people that just go, ah, ha, ha, this is all a Trojan horse to essentially get us fully back into the EU. I do absolutely accept that nobody wants to talk about Brexit because they think it's code for, let's go back to the old divisions. And therefore, the responsibility of people like myself is to show how the debate is moving on and to show why actually there's a different conversation that we need to be having. Do you, do you think it's a problem that 50% of the public in our poll didn't know what Labour's policy even was and of the rest who thought they did, most of them were wrong? Uh, it, it, does it matter? In, in a way that you could say as a positive, it's sort of neutralised as an issue <laughs> and they're voting on other things. Or you could see it as a negative that you haven't got that clarity that you've talked about. I take it as a challenge and a responsibility for those of us like the Labour Movement for Europe to make the case as to why it matters. The Labour Movement has a real opportunity to show not only the damage that this kind of isolationist Brexiteer thinking is doing, but also the benefits of rebuilding those relationships to British business, to British workers. I think about young people across this country who've had all their opportunities to work cut off because suddenly they won't be able to get a visa for longer than 90 days to be able to do things. But I also think about the debate around Northern Ireland. Now, Northern Ireland has been a really good example of this. So both Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer have extolled the benefits of having a close relationship with the European Union and also a close relationship with the UK. Well, what we're saying in the Labour Movement for Europe is actually the whole of the UK should have a special relationship with the European Union. And what we need to do now, whether it is on a visa waiver system, whether it's on access to the single market, whether it's on that customs union, is set out what we think that looks like so that we can start negotiations to see what is possible. See, I think you've just made a brilliant argument. I'm very mu- I very much agree with what you say, but that to many people will feel like we are going back into Europe. Well, I think this is this is the problem. You, you, I think you've done a great job of setting out the problems that leaving the EU has caused. But like most people in Labour at the moment, you don't want to talk about going back into Europe. But that's why the, the EU is kind of a bit binary, it is a bit all or nothing. That's why it was set up. You can't sort of go down the Boris Johnson sort of cakeist route of having all the benefits and none of the costs. There is still a sense that we're not we're not being honest about the trade-offs. And if you do want all of the business benefits of being in the single market, you have to accept the pluses and minuses of free movement. You have to go through the process of that sort of lengthy negotiation. There's no sort of real way to get the win without the without the trade-off. So there are lots of countries that aren't part of the European Union, but have trade treaties with the European Union. I think there is absolutely a deal to be done. And that trade and cooperation agreement moment is the moment to do it about that closer relationship and how much direct access to the single market we can achieve. They want to know what we want, because frankly, they've got other things on their agenda as well. And it's one of the things that always strikes me about some of these conversations. And one of the things I've often said to the people who think it's just about rejoin is, have you asked whether Europe would have us? Well, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I did ask it and that question. Yeah, yeah I mean, you know, it's, an and, it's a good question. Um, you know, sometimes I, I think about us as being like that awful man your aunt married 20 years ago and you've had to put up with at Christmas and finally she's divorced him. You're certainly not going to invite him back for Easter, are you? Like there is some bridge building to be done there, but there is also a recognition that it doesn't have to be all or nothing. 
I also think one of the things that's important to reflect on is we haven't for some time had a government negotiating with Europe that is not hostile to Europe in of itself. So we don't know what kind of relationship we could build that kind if we of weren't com- willing to yeah, actually work with people. That sort of comes back to Annan's, mm. we're just nicer people and we, we like like we like Europeans a bit more. I mean, they are still going to play hardball on, on a lot of these issues. The EU have always been really, really clear that the sort of golden ticket, which is access to the single market, comes with certain conditions. And freedom of movement is a huge part of that. And freedom of movement and immigration were such a a germane part of, of the whole kind of Brexit story. I mean, people may listen to that and just think, you're talking about sort of lots of visas and visa waivers. That's kind of freedom of movement by the back door. No, we already have a a visa system at the moment. It just doesn't work for any of those industries and it's crippling those kind of things. And also, I would argue that we've had this before where people characterise the European Union. They characterise the European Union over Northern Ireland and said that, you know, there'll never be a negotiation. And then actually there was a negotiation and people found common ground and now we've got the Windsor Agreement. There's plenty to negotiate around and the situation in Northern Ireland proved that. We just haven't started having those conversations yet. Sam, do you buy that? I think it's entirely fair to say we need to have the conversation with them. My guess is that we are going to find after we've had that conversation that we don't get very far. We might get some things which are useful and worth having, so it's it's, it's important to do. But I do worry that at the end of this process, we're going to have a lot of people saying, well, you haven't really fixed most of these problems that I've got with my business, with being able to travel abroad, whatever, and what are you going to do now? Eventually, we're going to have to confront this question of, in or out again. I don't know when. It, I don't know when. I don't know which generation is going to have to face it. But we are going to have to go around this again because ultimately it is an in and out kind of organisation. The EU. I take that point, but let me give you an example. With it's really nerdy, and I apologise in fact. That, you do not need to apologise to me about being nerdy. I know, I know, but I still I say it, and as the words come out of my mouth, I think, oh God, no one's ever going to invite me to the pub ever again. The Pan-European Mediterranean Convention, right? Yes, yes, this is what we want to hear on this podcast. I'm so sorry. The, it's broader than Europe, right? Um, Israel, various North African countries are part of it. But that's about tackling this issue about the rules of origin, mm. right? So that you don't have to be part of the European Union to mm. be part of. We were part of it when we were part of the European Union. We've never had the conversation about whether we should be part of that and all the benefits that come from mm. reducing paperwork. It doesn't eliminate it, but it helps reduce it. Those conversations have not happened. No, there certainly are some benefits that you can you can get um, from from negotiating on on a, on a range of these these sorts of topics. It's just that I, I I see it as being ultimately a one way street. Once you start doing this and you start getting some of the benefits, well, then then you can start thinking, well, what about the next set of benefits that we could get? And that draws you a bit closer and a bit closer. You know, eventually you sort of end up going, well, why are we still outside this thing when? What, what, you, know, you forget why it happened in the first place. But but as you've just put, I mean, I've just talked about a very clear benefit that mm. could come from that negotiation. I set that against having to sit in Parliament and hear day after day <laughs> Brexiteers tell me about the benefits Bill of Brexit. Bill Cash has got to retire at some point. But not actually set out when any of them are. And I watch long, my... Long game, long game. I, I watch 50 yeah, but, years. But how, how long does my community that has a ninth highest level of child poverty and is losing no, it's, it's have, to, have to wait? Point. So I, I will make no apologies for being clear about a particular benefit that could be negotiated within the next 18 months and a Labour government could lead on 
compared to the Tory Brexiteer fantasies that have driven the civil service mad and wasted all this time on the retained EU law bill, failed to deliver anything for our, our economy, which by everyone's now accepting. Even Nigel Farage accepts it's been a terrible disaster and they still can't tell us when there's a light at the end of the tunnel. So what would you say is the difference right now between Labour's position on Brexit, Keir Starmer's position on Brexit and Rishi Sunak's position on Brexit? So Rishi Sunak is always going to have one, possibly now two eyes on those Brexiteers on his backbenches who are holding conferences right now and talking about how all the world's problems are to do with women not having enough babies. <laughs> um, and who Sorry, are, guys, I'd like to apologise for my well, lack of obviously I've always thought, I always of... thought you were personally trying to bring down the government. In <laughs> I am. Way. Why do I hate Britain? Um, Breed. It's, you know, it's possibly their next slogan, so I wouldn't <laughs> laugh about it. Breed for Britain. And those people who have a, a knee-jerk reaction that somehow working with Europe diminishes rather than enhances what we're able to achieve. And that's where I see the difference, is that internationalism is part of the core of Labour's values, that idea that we are stronger when we collaborate with people for the common good rather than automatically setting up barriers to our neighbours. You've said that... You don't think you can make Brexit work. That is sort of the slogan for Keir Starmer's Labour Party at the moment. Do you think their stance on Brexit is going to help them pass the power test? I think their stance on Brexit is a work in progress. I mean, that's what the National Policy Forum process is about. And it behoves all of us who are internationalists, proud Brits and proud about our communities and want the best for them to be part of that conversation about what happens next. I am desperate for us to have a Labour government led by Keir Starmer and I'm desperate for us to fight to recover all the damage that's been done by this government in many different ways to our communities and our standing, whether locally, nationally or indeed internationally. So if the slogan make Brexit work isn't floating your boat and you've made a very passionate case for, for why that is, What's the kind of line you'd like to see eventually in the Labour manifesto? Oh, deal makers, not deal breakers. We make deals in the British interest. We don't break them and Britain's reputation at the same time. Well, Stella, it's been absolutely fascinating speaking with you. Thanks very much. Well, that was a fascinating discussion Sam, with both Anand and Stella. I mean, for me, it was it was quite actually rare to hear a, a Labour voice being so full-throated in their support about Europe, because we just don't really hear the Labour Party talk about Europe these days. Yeah, I mean, they're clearly terrified about, about going anywhere near it. And as Anand said, that kind of makes sense from a pre-election point of view in terms of neutralising the issue. Um, there's little to gain before the election because Remain voters are going to vote for progressive parties on the whole anyway. You know, so they're fighting over people who voted for Leave with the Conservatives. That's certainly how they're thinking about it. So there's just, you totally can understand why they don't want to talk about it. But then you, it's sort of a classic example where you know, our question of the power test, what makes sense for Labour pre-election and what makes sense post-election are just in very different places. Because after the election, they're going to have to confront the reality that, that you can't just cherry pick uh, the bits that you want of our old relationship and otherwise stay out of Europe. And, they, and there is just that sense of just over-promising again and they're going to, it's going to come back to bite them after the election. Well, I was struck at the difference between Anand's answer and Stella's answer to, you know, do you think Labour's passing the power test on this? Anand, absolutely, yes, they've neutralised it you know, just focus on the economics, focus on cost of living and don't really get into the guts of Brexit. Stella's answer was this is very much a work in progress. And I think many of our listeners will probably uh, agree with that because many of our listeners, certainly from from the comments we've had, are, are very 
upset about what's happened with Brexit. I understood that Stella is making, I think she's making quite a brave stance because right now the sort of fashionable view in the Labour Party is to not to talk about Europe. It's say nothing about Europe. But I just felt that the idea that we could somehow just get some kind of access to the single market without freedom of movement to me just just feels yeah. like that's just not in the realm. That to me feels like we're in the realms of, you know, we're not being honest about the situation. And Anand made a really important point, which we always, you know, we always come back to this on Brexit. No one's ever honest about the trade-offs. Yes. And I, and I think that's going to be a theme across this series. There are a number of different policy areas where the Conservatives have been very dishonest for a long time about the trade-offs and Labour are very nervous about being more honest and, and, and taking going on the front foot. And, and I do understand why they're worried about it. But and at least one of these issues, you think if they're going to be serious about rebuilding trust in politics, which is something Keir Starmer's talked about, they're going to have to start acknowledging some of these trade-offs more, more, more honestly. We've had a couple of questions in from, from our listeners. James um, messaged in, and a lot of people actually asked about this question, saying, do you think that there might be some big Starmer U-turn if he did get into number 10, where he says, right now, we're not going to talk about Europe. We're not going to talk about Brexit. We're going to make Brexit work. And then he comes in and there's this big secret plan that he goes, da <laughs> Yeah, I think probably a lot of people wish that were true. I don't get the impression that that is the case. I think they are very, very focused on the election and the best strategy for the election is neutralising Brexit. And they haven't really thought enough about what will happen afterwards. So I don't think there's some secret grand plan to to do a big U-turn, but I think they will be pushed in that direction after the election. And I, and I think they need to think about that because otherwise they're just going to get buffeted around. It just feels we're going to have spent we're going to spend hundreds of it's years debating. It's like our whole lives are going to be spent talking about Brexit, and then on my deathbed we're going to rejoin this bloody thing. I'm going to think that's my whole life we spent talking about this stupid yeah. issue. Sam, you've had a question from Tim, who who just basically wants to know why. What made you want to quit the Conservative Party? Because you were working for Michael for quite some time. Yeah, so I, well, I left in 2013. I think I gave sort of a slightly elusive comment last week where I said I sort of got very disappointed with politics and left uh, in 2013. I was a civil servant, actually, at the time, um, not not a, a sort of political advisor, um, but I was working very closely with uh, Michael Gove and the other advisors. Uh, and I got... Um, very just frustrated with the way politics operates and the fact, you know, there was just one example. I won't I won't bore everyone for hours with my, my miseries, but uh, I'd spent ages working on a new policy for GCSEs, uh, spent lots of time you know, sort of negotiating with the Liberal Democrats, who were obviously in coalition at the time, to, to get everyone's support for the policy. And then uh, Dominic Cummings and uh, possibly other people had a conversation with Tim Shipman, who was then at the Daily Mail, and the Daily Mail splash the next day was government to bring back O-levels, which was never the plan, but that killed the whole policy dead. Lib Dems were like, no way, we can't have anything to do with this anymore. Killed it, no policy. And I'd spent months working on that. I just thought, this is a ridiculous way of running a country. I can't deal with this. So there were a few instances like that where I just thought, I can't, I'm, I'm not cut out for this world. Oh, I'm going to have a word with Tim Shipman. I feel like this is lovely. <laughs> well, it's not his fault. It was a great story as far as he was concerned. But it, it's just that, that sort of, I think a lot of policy people in, in Westminster feel that sort of frustration of everything being too comms driven. 
um, and comms people get annoyed with the policy people well, for not giving them... Well, I was just about them, to say how <laughs> very, very dare you. But it, look, it is a frustration. There was always a, a kind of a tension in government and politics between, you know, the need to, to land a story and, and, and get that headline and, of course, the compromise on the policy thing. I mean, I always felt that if you were kind of restructuring all of this stuff, you would put comms people in the conversations from the the beginning so they understood the genesis of where mm. this was coming from because i think too often in government comms people come in at the end and they just they just look at the headline story they just look at the top line they don't know the sort of background to it and they just think right who can i kind of sell this into so i mean as a comms person i apologize for that <laughs> well I, I and 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 i don't really blame the comms people because they have like their their task to get good coverage i think the problem is that um this is perhaps a, perhaps a subject for another episode. Episode, but there is a sort of problem with the fact that the media cycle has sped up so much that it dominates politics in a really unhealthy way. I mean, you used to have sort of two news cycles a day with 24-hour news. Now you have a sort of like half an hour cycle yeah. because of social media. And th- but that's actually, we should do that. As a, that's actually a good, that's a good topic. Anyway, thanks uh, very much for listening to today's episode. Get in touch with your thoughts on anything we've discussed and tell us what you think needs to happen for us to get a better Britain. It's been great to have so many of your comments and questions come through over the past week. Uh, you can tweet us at the Paratest or you can email us on pod at theparatest.co.uk and you can also join our community as a founding member by subscribing on Substack uh, and your help will be really um, gratefully received. It'll help this podcast grow and it also gets you access to new episodes before anyone else. Uh, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and if you could rate and review us wherever you're listening, that would be really great too. So next time, I'm really excited about this, we're going to be focusing on the UK economy and going for growth, which we hear from all politicians. But we don't actually hear that many solutions as to how to make this happen. So we will see you then. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.